0: What do you think when you hear about Christian movements or revivals? When you talk with other people about them, what do you say? How do you evaluate them? We've had a couple opportunities to talk about these things over the past couple months here. Um, First, there was the event at Asbury University where the chapel service began on February 8th and instead of ending an hour later, went for 16 days said 50,000 to 70,000 people came to pray, to sing, to hear scripture. Closed on uh, February 24th. I've been asked by quite a few people what I think is happening there, and I'm sure some of you have talked about it as well. Well, that ended um, just in time for everyone to go out and catch the opening to Jesus Revolution, which also came out on the 24th. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Nothing. All right. Now, pity laughs. Get it yeah. Yeah. I have a Jesus revolution about the, uh, the movement of hippies in the early '70s out in California coming to faith. And I haven't seen it yet. I'm waiting for streaming, but um, I, I've heard about it, I've been asked about it. I've heard some of your conversations about it, and it's interesting. To hear the different takes um, from different people who were alive versus who were born after. who have just seen some of the after effects of it. But how do we evaluate these things? What does it look like for the gospel to really take root in these movements? Or in our own churches, our communities, or even our own individual lives? Well, We're going to see an example this morning as a movement comes to Antioch. A place that they didn't really expect it either. So let's see what we see here in Acts 11. Hear God's word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing on in our study of the book of Acts, and we're at this real turning point in the book. If you remember kind of the thesis verse or theme statement for the book of Acts, it's in Um, Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells the apostles, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. The last couple of weeks and then this morning, we're at this turning point where we're starting to see it go to the end of the earth. These last two weeks, we heard about Peter's vision of God making all foods and all people clean. And then we see him taking the gospel to Gentiles. And they believe that this barrier between Gentile and Jew has been demolished. It's been removed. They received the Holy Spirit just like the apostles did at Pentecost. There was no differentiation. Then we saw last week how some in the church in Jerusalem responded to that. That it brought up some internal conflict on what we see there. And as we saw the church expand kind of ethnically last week, today we see it expand geographically as well. So we're going to be focusing on Antioch now. It's about 330 miles north of Jerusalem. So the distance would be like going from here to Indianapolis about, except they didn't have cars. So it takes a little longer. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Alexandria and Rome population of about 500,000 at this time. So some of you guys think Appleton's a big city. Um, It's bigger than that even back then. People from all over the Empire So it's a pretty diverse crowd. And it's a city that will come up. It's the city that this church will be the launching point for Paul's missionary journeys. As he goes forward, he's sent out from there for his missionary journeys. And so as the gospel spreads beyond Canaan, beyond the promised land, and among different people, what does it look like for the gospel to take root in these places? What does it look like for the gospel to take root in Antioch? And what might it look like for the gospel to take root in us? And we're going to see the pattern in this passage this morning is that it involves turning to Christ, staying with Christ, and learning Christ. So we must turn to Christ, stay with Christ, and learn Christ. First, turning to Christ. Look at verse 19. So it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this connects us right back with Um, chapter 8 the beginning of the chapter there you can kind of take out the chapters in between and it connects right with that bit those who were scattered went about preaching the word where before they went to Samaria now it's going even farther Um, Phoenicia is a little farther north of that Cyprus is an island out in the Mediterranean Antioch is much farther north and so it's growing like that but they're still speaking the word to no one except Jews And there are pockets of Jews all over the empire. We call them Diaspora Jews, Jews that have been dispersed as the Jews were removed from the promised land previously. So there are these pockets of Jews, and that's where the church is spreading initially. And so now these these Christian Jews are going to these places. They're meeting in the synagogue. We see that as Paul's pattern too, that he meets in the synagogue. And he, he tells them how Jesus is the promised Messiah, Jesus is the Christ they've been waiting for. He's the son of David who will reign on his throne forever. But something different happens here in Antioch in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Doesn't stop with the Jews, just adds another group to it, right? The Hellenists also And Hellenist means Greek speaker. It's used previously in Acts, talking about Greek-speaking Jews. We saw that previously in Acts 6, when the diaconates formed. Um, But really, it just means someone who speaks Greek. And with it contrasted here with the Jews, I think it's talking about non-Jewish people. So Greeks, if you will. And that fits with the trajectory of what's happening in Acts, too. The gospel going to the Gentiles in the last chapter. And then in two chapters, in chapter 13, we're going to see the missionary journeys start. And we see the result in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we have God's people proclaiming Christ. Right? Just unnamed people here. Just being faithful. Being witnesses where they are. Bearing witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. Some of those Bible thumpers. Right? Wherever they are. And the hand of the Lord was with them. It's the work of the Lord. This doesn't happen apart from him. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I think that phrasing in the ESV can be a little confusing. Makes it sound like it's kind of two steps. You believe and then you turn to the Lord. Uh, I think the NIV and King James are clearer. They group it together. In Greek it's a participle. Many believing turned to the Lord. That's the main verb actually is turn the Turn to the Lord, not believe, um, here in this passage. So that's the main idea there, is turning to the Lord. That's what we first see. They turn to Christ. The good news of Jesus is proclaimed, and many people turn to Christ because God is with them. I'm reading Tim Keller's biography right now, and he talks about a couple instances where he's seen this happen in his own life. First, when he came to faith in college, he's involved with InterVarsity, and his group goes from being five to ten people his freshman and sophomore year to then his junior and senior year. It's ten times that. Just this explosion The God is at work. People are turning to Christ. Then he talks later about when he goes, moves to New York, he moves to Manhattan to plant Redeemer. He said the first year, year and a half, just crazy number of conversions. The people are just turning to the Lord. Years later, he says, I'm a lot better of a preacher now. But I'm not seeing the same response. You see God was with it. Right? We say he's Tim Keller. Of course people are responding like like that. But he wasn't Tim Keller then. I mean he was Tim Keller. But he wasn't Tim Keller. Right? (laughs) But when God saves, he makes us witnesses. He changes us. We're to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Just like Kevin called us to. It's like we heard from those other believers. We're to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world around us. We're to evangelize. That's the dirty word we don't like, right? Evangelism. That's the Greek word used there in verse 20. It says, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. Here's the good news, is that the results aren't on us. Had the Lord's hand not been in it, many wouldn't, wouldn't have turned to the Lord, and yet they still would have witnessed. It's just some random guys, just members of the church proclaiming the good news of Christ, and yet many turn because the Lord is in it. So that leaves us, kind of just begs the question then, have you turned to the Lord? That's where it starts. It's the first step. Why do you need to? The gospel, what is this good news? The good news is that though God has created us in his image, though he has made us for a relationship with himself, we have rejected him. What we call sin, disobeying him, rejecting his rule and reign in our lives. It separates us from God. It makes us experience all the brokenness of this world. And yet he did not leave us alone in it. That God himself took on flesh and walked among us. That he died in our place that we might live. If we will only believe in him, if we'll turn to him by faith, he will save us. He'll forgive us our sins. He'll restore us to our relationship with God. The relationship for which we were created He will make us new. He will make us alive. You don't have to do anything to make yourself right with God. You can't do anything to make yourself right with God. You can't do enough good to counter the balance sheet. God has done it for us in Christ. If only we will turn to him. Will you turn to him by faith today? Seeing that he has accomplished And he has provided everything we need. That's this initial response. Turn to Christ. That's how things start. The gospel is preached. People turn to Christ. So we hear of this movement or a conversion, but then is it genuine? That's always the question then. What comes next? Not only an initial turning to Christ, but they stay with Christ. Look with me at verses 22 to 24. So the report of this church came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So the church in Jerusalem hears about it, And they want to check it out. They want to make sure things are kosher. It's a Jewish joke. I'm sorry. sorry. But they want to check it out. It's a little bit out there, a little bit beyond what they've seen so far. Not only are Jews turning to Christ, but Greeks are turning to Christ as well. A lot of them. And a lot farther from home than they're used to. Probably not all that dissimilar from a bunch of hippies out in California doing it, right? People who are a lot different, who shatter the mold. So they send Barnabas to check it out. Barnabas is from Cyprus. So maybe he's not as entrenched in the focus on Jewishness or Jerusalem as some were. That he understands the implications of the gospel maybe a little bit quicker. And some of those evangelizing are from Cyprus. So they might be actually people that he actually knew. He can go talk to them. And I love his response when he comes there and he sees the grace of God. He was glad. He rejoices. His first instinct wasn't a hesitation. It wasn't a let's wait and see. It wasn't a criticism for anything that was done wrong. It wasn't make sure we get this straightened out and then I'll be okay with it. His first instinct is to rejoice, to praise God. This was a little convicting for me as my first instinct is often criticism, often hesitancy. But he doesn't expect maturity from infants like I often do. So what does he do next? He exhorts them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he doesn't just leave it there, though. He rejoices at the grace of God and then exhorts them to resolve to stay with Christ. It's kind of the remain faithful is to stay uh, the same root as abide. Stay with Christ. And it says he does this because he was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He's the only person Luke calls good in the book of Acts. Interesting. Um, Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He's a man of utmost character, exhorting these new believers. He's the one you'd want to listen to. He's the one you'd be willing to listen to as he exhorts them. And a great many people were added to the Lord, another wave, even more. So first, people turn to Christ. Then Barnabas exhorts them to stay with Christ, to remain faithful. Because the reality is that not all do. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you've seen this happen. People leave. That's what we see with the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, right? Though the seed of the word sprouts up in all of the soils, only one of the three soils bears fruit. The others wither because of persecution or are choked out by cares of this world or by the deceitfulness of riches. Or Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hold fast. Remain faithful. Stay with Christ. It's not always easy. Jesus, in those soils, they talk about persecution, hardship. Okay. Barnabas says you'll need to do it with steadfast purpose, with resolve. Stay with Christ but we don't just muster this up ourselves, right? If we actually begin to grasp the gospel, what Christ has done for us, we can't help but stay. Once we've tasted his goodness, where else would we go? It's like what happens in John 6. Right after Jesus says some really weird things about eating his body and drinking his blood, (laughs) he says those things, and then it says a bunch of the disciples stop following him. He looks at the 12 and says, Do you want to go as well? Peter, it's always Peter, right? Opens his mouth first. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else would we go? Yet we know many do. The first couple that I married um, after being ordained that I did premarital counseling for were people outside of the church. We do the, Dan and I do this from time to time as our schedules allow people that are outside the church come to us. Um, and he said he's an atheist and she said that she is a Christian. So I'm asking her what that means and she tells me how that she's prayed to accept Christ that she's been baptized and professed your faith and hear more about their lives and ask about what's going on and um, Well, I believe that the Bible teaches that a Christian and a non Christian can't be married. Which puts me in a fun spot, especially for my first wedding right after ordination, right? So the next time we get together I tell them that. I said, I can't marry a Christian and a non Christian. but I think I can marry you because I don't think you're a Christian. I went on to share with her what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ and how with everything she shared about her life, it doesn't line up. It doesn't fit. She doesn't go to church. She's living with her fiance and on and on and on. She said, so you're saying that being a Christian is a whole way of life. Yeah, it is. It's all of life. She said, if that's what it is, then no, I'm not. Right? There was a time when she professed Christ but that was a point in time in the past and that's all she could look to to say, I'm a Christian. I did this. She didn't stay with Christ. I'm afraid we have that same tendency in us. We've so much emphasized the conversion experience or praying a certain prayer or having been baptized that that's what we look to for our assurance, that that's what makes us a Christian, that that's how we know we're good. But they don't save us. They don't keep us. Those aren't bad things. Those are good things. We should rejoice when they happen as Barnabas does here. But that can't be it. It's something that we've done. There's nothing wrong with the conversion experience. Praise God if you have one. Thank God for that. But I hope my kids never do. I hope they don't remember a day apart from Christ. There's nothing wrong with praying the sinner's prayer, confessing our sin, our need for Christ, and our faith in Him. But praying it won't save you. If praying a prayer is what you think saves you, then you're not getting it. Christ, not a prayer, saves you. Are you with Him? Because being a disciple of Christ means that we not only turn to him, but that you stay with him, that you actually follow him. Because where else would you go? We can and should rejoice in hearing an initial profession of faith and an initial turning to the Lord, as Barnabas does. But I think a better question that we often fail to ask is, are you being faithful today? Am I being faithful today today? It's often a better gauge. Not what did I say about Jesus at one time in the past, but what do I say about Jesus now? Do I know the love of Christ now? Do I want to please Jesus now? I'm not saying you can lose your salvation or we're not... justified and declared righteous when we believe. But I'm saying that these are indicators of whether we believed or not. Whether we truly did. And if you've turned to him and then walked away, it's okay. Return to him. Stay with him. If you turn to him, he will not reject you. We don't do it perfectly. We never will. Not on this side of glory. Not saying that. But it's the pattern of your life that you stay with him because you love him, because you know his love for you. Because you say with Peter, where else would I go? First they turn to Christ, then they stay with Christ. And as they stay with Christ, they learn Christ. Look at verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. So he goes and gets Saul from his hometown, Tarsus, and brings him back to Antioch. And for a whole year they gather and they teach And people are there learning. The church gathers and learns Christ. If we take Paul's letters as an example, we see that they taught them who Christ is, what Christ has done, how the reality of Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross and his resurrection play out in our lives. What it means for us. The depths of the gospel and how being united to Christ influences every aspect of our lives. Notice too, it's done in community. They're gathering together as the church, hearing God's word taught. And it fits with what a disciple is. One who kind of engages in learning through instruction from another. Kind of a pupil or an apprentice. They come alongside, they follow under. This isn't something that we should do begrudgingly where we do it because we have to do it. Right? Oh, I have to read my Bible. Oh, I have to go to church again. Oh, I have to go to praxis. I have to go to community group. Right? But because I love Jesus, I want to learn him more. Have you ever noticed how when you love something, you want to learn it? You go down the rabbit trails on YouTube because we're interested and we like it, (laughs) even though it's never going to be useful in our lives, right? Maybe it's one class that you really enjoy in school where you hate school overall. Do you love that one because you're interested? You care about it? Maybe it's your hobby. Cooking, or woodworking, or pickleball. Maybe it's the Packers, where you read all the articles, you know all the players and stats. You've already worked out um, what the Packers need to get from the Jets for Rogers, right? You should send an email. I'm sure, they'd love to hear it. Um, right? We're not indifferent toward what we love. We don't complain about going to things that we like. If you're a Packers fan, you don't complain that you get to go to a Packers game. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, you're excited about it. You skip church for it, probably. It's another, another sermon for another day. Um, <laughs> you look forward to it. You want to go deeper. You want to know better. When it's someone you love, you want to please them. Are you learning Christ? Are you growing in your knowledge of him and how what he has done plays out in your life, in your relationships, in your job, in your family, in how you spend your free time, in how you spend your money, in what you say, in how you make decisions? Do you want to learn Christ? Do you love him? I'm not saying we, like, uh, flip a switch and everything just changes, right? That we all understand all the implications right away. We're just transformed. No, we're, it takes time. God's patient with us. We stay with Christ. We learn Christ. We keep learning Christ. We're all in process, all being sanctified. But if we don't see any changes happening at all, if all our Christianity is, is that we keep checking the boxes and going through the motions, then I think we need to ask whether we know him. Whether we love him. Whether we know his love for us. All right, they turn to Christ. They stay with Christ. And they learn Christ. You notice a the theme there? christ at the end of verse 26 this should be so basic but it's actually quite profound in antioch the disciples were first called christians they're people of christ they're followers of christ they're servants of christ that's how they're known it's what they're known for is that how you're known is that what you're known for? This name was given to them by those outside the church. They refer to themselves as, and each other as disciples, as brothers and sisters, as saints, as followers of the way even, but not as Christians. It doesn't take off really until the second century. So it wasn't like they're at work and they let it slip that they're a Christian. It's what stuck out to their co-workers. It's what stuck out to their neighbors. It's what stuck out to the people around them. That they're these people who are all about Christ. Keep talking about him. Their lives are shaped by him. It's how they're known. It's how they're labeled. It's all about Christ. They turn to Christ. They stay with Christ. They learn Christ. It's clear from that last statement that they witness to Christ. May that be true of us in our own hearts, in our own church, and in our own community.